Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Well, here in the Northern Hemisphere, we're moving closer to the winter solstice. There's something profound about the enveloping darkness that comes with this time of year. And the seasonal cycle governs all life, (laughs) all life on the planet, and expresses itself in and through human being and consciousness as a psychic move inward to sleep, to dream, reflection, meditation. There's a call to slow down, to shift our attention away from outer activities to inner action, to muse and brood. And although this is a relatively quiet and still state, there's tremendous creativity in this. It's the birthplace of all that we envision and will ultimately plant in the months to come. And this result of the musing or brooding, whatever you want to call it, that result may take many forms. But I want to tell you a story today with an important insight about the process. And this process is not limited to this time of year. Some people like me are great brooders no matter how high the sun is in the sky. (laughs) But I find myself particularly interested in stories that tell me something about that inward turn and incubation when there's a lot of that enveloping warm darkness holding my psyche. The story is The Six Swans, And I found this fairy tale in a collection by the Brothers Grimm, but you can find similar stories elsewhere. Hans Christian Andersen, I have discovered, wrote a tale titled The Wild Swans that's very similar. And Andersen, in turn, was inspired by a story called The Eleven Swans by Matthias Winther. And the Grimm's brothers themselves collected a couple of others that are variations on this theme. And I might tell you another one, actually, in in the next podcast. But anyway, all of these with known authors, like Anderson, rest, of course, on the older versions created by Anonymous that were passed around the fire or the spinning circle for years uncountable before. I'm mentioning these variations because if this story feeds or puzzles you, you may look for these others and roam around in the larger conversational space created between these tales and see what happens for you. So without further ado, I want to tell you the story. Sit back, relax, let the story carry you. I am going to share some of my thoughts about that important insight that I mentioned. But as always, I invite and encourage you to note the moment in the story that speaks to you, the detail that captures your attention, because this is your way into the story right now. The Six Swans 
One day, a king went hunting out in a vast forest, and he was so intent on the hunt that at one point, none of his men could keep up with him. And when it started to grow dark, he stopped and looked around and realized that he was quite alone and that he was lost. He looked for a way out of the forest, but he couldn't find one anywhere. And while he was searching, he encountered a doddering old woman. She walked up to him, shaking her head from side to side as she walked. She was a witch. Good woman, he said, could you possibly show me the way out of this forest? Well, of course I can, your highness, she replied. I can let you know how to get out, but there's one little condition that goes with this if you want my help. And by the way, you don't really have any choice because if you don't take the deal that I'm offering you, you will never leave the forest and you will die here of hunger. What's the condition? The king asked. I have a daughter, the old woman said. She is as beautiful as any other woman on earth, and she deserves to be your wife. If you decide to make her your queen, I will show you the way out of the woods. Well, the king was quite afraid for his life and agreed to her condition. So the old woman took him into her hut, where he found the daughter sitting by the fire, and she welcomed the king as if she had been expecting him. He saw right away that she was very beautiful, but there was something kind of creepy about her that he didn't like, and he had a hard time looking her in the eye, but he went ahead and took her with him. They got on his horse together, and the old woman pointed the way out of the forest, and they rode off. And when he got back to his palace, there was a wedding, and she was made his queen. Now, the king had been married before, and he had seven children from his first wife, six boys and a girl. And he loved these kids more than anything else in the world. He was afraid that maybe this new stepmother would mistreat them. And so he sent all of them out to an isolated castle deep in the woods. It was so remote and the path to it was so obscure that even the king himself couldn't find his way there without help. And he received a magical ball of yarn from a wise woman that rolled itself out and showed the path to this castle and then rolled itself out again when he was ready to leave and showed him the path home. Otherwise, he would have never been able to make it out there to visit them. And he did visit them quite a lot his children were beloved, and he was gone so much without explaining anything to the queen that after a while, she got very curious about where he was going and what he was doing. 
she bribed the servants with a lot of money. And they not only disclosed his secret about the children and the castle, but they also told her about this magical ball of yarn, the ball of yarn that you needed to find the path. The queen could not rest once she heard this until she found the ball of yarn, and she did find it. She then sewed little white shirts of silk. And since her mother was a witch, and she was her mother's daughter, she stitched a magical spell into each of these shirts. One day, when the king was out hunting, she took the little shirts and the ball of yarn and went out into the woods. And the ball of yarn showed her the path through the forest to the castle where the children were living. The children looked out the windows and they saw someone approaching from a distance and of course they assumed that it was their father. And filled with joy, they ran out to greet him. And as soon as they got close enough, the queen threw a shirt over each one of them and as soon as the shirt touched them, they turned into swans and flew high up over the trees. Well, the queen went home gleefully, smiling and thinking to herself that she had gotten rid of those stepchildren. But, as it turned out, the girl had not left the house with her brothers, and the queen did not know that she existed. The next day, the king went into the forest to visit his children, but only his daughter was there. Where are your brothers? Oh, father, she replied, they have all gone away and left me here alone. And then she told him how she had stood at the window and seen her brothers fly away. And then she showed him feathers that she had found in the yard that she'd picked up after they left. Well, the king was very upset, but it never dawned on him that his wife was responsible for this wicked enchantment. In fact, he was afraid that if he left the girl there, she would be taken as well and decided that he would take her back home to the castle and the new queen with him. But the daughter was afraid of the stepmother and she asked her father, the king, if he would stay just this one night with her in the castle so she could have one more night there, which he agreed to. Well, this poor girl was thinking, I can't live here any longer, but I'm not going home with him, and I've got to find my brothers. So in the middle of the night, while her father was asleep, she left and fled. She just went into the woods by herself and walked all night long and the next day as well. And just at the point where she was just way too tired to go on, she came to a little hut. She went in, and she found six beds in it. She didn't dare get into any of the beds, but she crawled underneath one and stretched out 
on the hard ground, hoping to get a little bit of sleep. Just about that time that the sun was setting, and she heard this whirring of wings, and she peeked out from underneath the bed, and she saw six swans come flying in through the window. And they huffed and puffed and blew on each other, and their feathers started falling to the ground, and then all of their feathers fell out and their swan skins came off as if they were nothing but shirts. And the girl looked at them and realized that they were her brothers. She was overjoyed to see them and came crawling out from underneath the bed. And as soon as they saw her, they were super excited to see their little sister. And they hugged and kissed, and but their joy was short-lived. The brother said, you're going to have to get out of here. You can't stay here for long because this is a robber's den. And if they come back and find you, they will kill you. Well, can't you protect me from them? The sister asked. No, no, uh, we can't, they said. We only get to remove our swan skins for a quarter of an hour in the evening. For that short time, we regain our human form, but then we're turned back into swans. The sister wept when she heard this. Can't anyone break this terrible spell? Well, yes, they said there is a way to do it, but it's, it's simply too hard. For six years, you would have to go without speaking or laughing. You would have to spend all of that time in absolute silence. And so, six shirts for us from star flowers. If a single word came out of your mouth, it would be completely undone. All would be lost. All of your work would be for nothing. Just as the brothers finished explaining what had to be done, the quarter of an hour was up, and poof, they were turned back into swans and flew out the window. The girl felt that she had absolutely nothing in the world, and she had to set her brothers free no matter what, even if it cost her her life. And with that determination in mind, she left the little hut walked deeper into the woods and climbed a tree and went to sleep. The next morning, she walked around the woods collecting the necessary star flowers and began sewing. She didn't have anyone to talk to. She certainly had no desire to laugh. All she did was sit there and attend to her work. One day, After she had spent a lot of time in the woods, the king of the land was hunting in the forest, and some of his huntsmen discovered the tree and noticed the girl up in the tree sewing, and they called up to her. Who are you? But she didn't reply. Come down here to us, they said. We won't won't hurt you. Don't be afraid. But she just shook her head. They kept asking questions about who she was and trying to entice her to come down. So finally she took off her gold necklace and threw it down to them, hoping that that would satisfy them. But it didn't. They persisted in pestering her, and so she 
tossed down her belt and then her garters, and finally she had tossed everything down to them that she could manage to do without, and they were still persisting. And finally, they climbed up, and she was sitting up there in her in her shift. They climbed up and carried her down and took her to the king. The king asked her then, well, who are you? And what were you doing up in that tree? She refused to answer. The king thought maybe she was a foreigner. He asked her the same question in every language that he knew. But she remained as mute as a stone. She was very beautiful. He was greatly moved by her beauty and her dignity, and there was something very poignant about her, and he felt this overwhelming desire to take care of her and watch over her. So he put his cloak around her and mounted his horse and rode off with her to his castle. He dressed the girl in royal garments, and he tried over time to coax her into communicating, to say just one word, and she never did. But nevertheless, he fell in love with her. He loved her beauty and her modesty, and it was clear that she was a young woman with very good breeding. And so he told his mother, I want to marry this woman. There is nobody else that interests me. And a few days later, the marriage was celebrated. Well, this king's mother was an evil woman, and she was not happy with the marriage. She never missed a chance to speak ill of the young queen and to ask provocative questions about where such a young woman could possibly come from, one that was found up in the branches of a tree, for God's sake, who wouldn't speak. How could someone who can't even talk be good enough to marry a king? she asked. A year later, when the queen gave birth to her first child, the old woman took it away while she was sleeping and smeared blood on the queen's mouth. And then she went to the king and accused the mother of maybe eating her own baby. Well, the king refused to believe something like that, and he wouldn't let anyone touch his wife. For her part, the queen sat quietly, sewing her shirts, and paid attention to nothing else. When she gave birth again, this treacherous mother-in-law played the same trick. But again, the king refused to believe any kind of evil about his wife. She's just way too good and too kind to do a thing like that, he said. And if she could talk, I'm sure she would defend herself. I'm sure there's an explanation and that she is innocent. But then it happened a third time. There was another child, and once again the old woman stole the newborn baby and accused the queen of killing it. And still the young queen didn't utter a word to defend herself. And the king felt then that he really had no choice but to turn her over to a judge, and this judge sentenced her to death by fire. The day which the sentence was to be carried out was exactly the last day 
of the six years during which she had not been able to speak or laugh, and she had devoted herself so singularly to this task of sewing these shirts that she had them complete all all except that the sixth shirt, the last one, was missing the left sleeve. Well, there was nothing to be done for it. They came to take her, to lead her to the stake, and she had the shirts with her. She carried them over her arm, and she was already up there at the stake, and somebody was already coming to light the fire. When she heard a whirring of wings and looked up and saw the six swans flying through the air towards her, she knew these were her brothers and that they would soon be freed, and her heart swelled with joy. The swans flew right over her, and they came close enough so that she could whoop, toss the shirts on them. And at the moment that the shirts touched them, the swan skins vanished. And there were her brothers, standing right before her, strong and fit and handsome, and only the youngest was missing an arm. In place of his left arm, there was a swan's wing. The queen and her brothers couldn't stop hugging and kissing and 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 they were they were so happy and the king was standing he couldn't he was completely confused nobody knew what was going on and finally she turned to him and said dear husband now i can finally speak and let you know that i am utterly innocent and all those accusations were false and she told him that the old woman had stolen away the children and kept them in hiding And to the king's great joy, the children were discovered, and the evil mother-in-law was sentenced to death at the stake. The king and the queen lived in peace and happiness for the rest of their days with the six brothers of the queen. I began this program by referencing our place in the natural cycle and that there is a response in the human psyche a call towards greater interiority. This story describes that process, both inner and outer, personal and collective. And the genders of the characters are carrying an archetypal or symbolic significance. In other words, it's not about literal man and woman. So the king, for example, is our inner ruler, the head of our kingdom, that is, the one who maintains the inner order, rules, our, our paradigm. And each one of us has such a king. It may be, he may be healthy and functioning with wisdom and generosity, or old and decrepit, naive, ineffectual, a tyrant, an evil despot. And we can locate such an authority, a king in the collective psyche as well. Now, I'm using the king here as an example, although what I'm saying pertains to all of the different characters, because I want to focus on the need for protection as an essential part of this incubation process. And it is the king's job to guide and protect And our king, in this story, does neither. 
He's inept. The father is totally inept. He doesn't guide or protect his children. He lacks an essential skill, a skill that a good king must have, discernment. He doesn't suspect the creepy queen. And this reminds me of another story I've shared with you called The King and the Corpse. You might recall in that story, the king receives a gift of fruit from an old beggar day after day after day after day, and he never questions it. He never wonders why this is happening or suspects anything. So there's a lack of imagination that is essential to discernment. Now, we learn that the old king, the father king, has no wife. He's lost his connection, in other words, to soul life, to the feeling realm, to intuition. So he's easily trapped and manipulated by the death-dealing forces there, the witches. The decay, then, of the kingdom, the old paradigm, is complete because the king, through his ineptitude and ability to perform his function, and the queen as the death-dealing force of disconnection. Both of them, in their own way, sabotage what's necessary for renewal, the kids. We note that the young daughter has more sense. She follows feeling, intuition, and outwits her dad. So you sense the connection here between discernment as a valuable skill, imagination, and renewal of the kingdom, right? Our kingdom has to be refreshed periodically. That is our habitual consciousness. We get fixated, dogmatic, and stale. Even a king who is good right now will at some point in our lives need to be replaced. So we understand the need for the project. But what is it? Well, she's sewing shirts. Sewing shirts of starflowers. We have stars in the sky, right, and on earth as plants in this story. We have heaven and earth. With Between the swans and the human siblings, we have the, the animal, the inhuman, and the human. We're invoking other realms here. You know, we can add into this the unconscious and the conscious, the archetypal and the personal. And there's a task here of bringing them together unifying, reforming. The sister is bringing something that once belonged to the human, personal, everyday world of consciousness that is her brother's back. It was here and it's been exiled. It's been lost. And now she's got to do something to bridge the gap and bring them back. I think it's really interesting that she climbs a tree a tree itself, a bridge between realms, with roots in the earth, the unseen, the unconscious, its presence on earth, on this plane, and then branches towards the heaven. And there's a spot there, an in-between space that she chooses to occupy to perform her task, drawing on those energies, synthesizing, if you will. And that tree Bridging those two realms affords her protection for a time. And then she's found. And when she is found, we then begin to unpack the necessity of the silence. It wasn't hard for her to be silent when she was by herself, right? 
But now external pressures build that threaten it. Now somebody wants her to speak. Now others are demanding that she speak. Now aspersions are being cast. Her life is being threatened because she can't express, because she isn't speaking. What would happen, do you think, if she told the king, her husband, about her brother's turn to swans and the project of the star flowers and the shirts? Well, we already know that the process would have been stopped completely. And why is that? Maybe because he wouldn't have believed her. Maybe because he would have tried to dissuade her from her task, pressure her to give up and invest in their lives together. Even if he had been supportive, the necessary energy would have been lost. Haven't you had this experience? I think we know that feeling, what it's like when you get a glimpse, a shred of insight or idea. When something comes to you that's very powerful, an epiphany perhaps, and if you share it too soon, it goes no further. The energy stops developing. There is a time when a creative idea or work shouldn't be talked about. When I think about this, I'm reminded of another story I've shared with you all called Iron John. You might remember in that story the young prince in exile hides his golden hair, because to show his gold too soon would circumvent this process, the psychic development that's taking place in him, and so dissipate the power. It's like harvesting a plant too soon. So her silence is protecting the process. The protection theme appears again in The King Who Is Husband, who is vulnerable in the end to his evil mom. He puts her off the first couple times that the children disappear, and then the third time he says, oh, I guess I have no choice, turns her over to the judge. And I think even in this part of the story, we once again get the message of how important it is to protect, to contain the creative process that's underway. There's these beautiful parallels and repetitions between the different kings and the queens, we might move on to a new king that is a new ruling authority under a variety of circumstances. Our protagonist, she doesn't choose him, and yet she must deal. She's got to participate and protect her process and project, even though at some level it seems like change has occurred. And then we see that same vulnerability in this king, the king husband who can't perform the task of protecting. And there's a parallel between the queens, the desire of each queen in the story to kill or hijack the lives of the kids. And I wonder how much we repeat over and over staying at the same stage in our psychic creative processes because We align ourselves with the new king too soon and once again meet that queen who kills our project before it can live on its own. The daughter-turned-young-woman-turned-queen perseveres, and at the time of the greatest outer threat, when the cycle is complete, 
The brothers arrive, and she brings them back. And this also releases her. They've been exiled together, and they return together. Because in completing her task, she now possesses what they signify, the courage and focused action to hold fast to the goal. And we can set aside the gendered language easily of boys and girls, of sisters and brothers, and say, she has, through rescuing this lost aspect of self, grown through meeting the challenge, a challenge that took great love and courage. Now, what's the project? I think there are many answers to that question. If we turn to the Jungians, then we'll find that the renewal or revitalization of our stagnant or decaying kingdom of ego consciousness depends on fresh energies that percolate in the unconscious, the unseen, the invisible, the depths, the mystery. And I turn to Maria Louise von Franz. She says that something that was part of the conscious world was exiled to the unconscious and describes the sewing of the shirts as working for many years in deep introversion and concentration to find a human way to let the irrational, unconscious contents appear in human life without disintegrating the conscious world. This is a creative task. What von Franz is talking about is recovering something that has been repressed and doing so in a way that transforms and invigorates our everyday ego consciousness without taking us apart, (laughs) without breaking our world down so much that we can't integrate it. And the silence is essential. Silence protects the mystery of this process whether you see it as the recovery and integration of shadow content uh, connected to the project of individuation, of self-realization, or you see this as a process that may result in um, some other form of creative output or personal growth, that silence is essential because it protects the mystery of that process from the banal and makes it an almost religious, mystical experience. As this story tells us, when you consciously hold a secret, you protect it from the everyday logic, your own and those of others around you that you might tell. So it isn't reduced through explanation. It's not dismissed. And the process then does not end until the cycle is complete. This time is an invitation to listen to what is calling and to hold it close, to sit without divulging until the nature of your project reveals itself to you, and even then, (laughs) to hold it close in a kind of sacred silence. It's one of the mysterious gifts of the dark. And that's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Thank you so much for listening.
Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.